0: All right. Well, let's start in Ephesians chapter 4. We will hopefully finish Ephesians this morning and get into Philippians. So you can just kind of keep turning the pages because uh, we have references all throughout here that we're going to uh, kind of build up into what uh, Paul is addressing as he nears the end of his life regarding the Spirit of God. Um, so far, we have been over this, this concept that what unity comes from the Spirit of God is a unity that can't come from anything else. Um, as the church of Christ is no longer just Jewish as it started out to be. It became Gentile very quickly, the Holy Spirit showing the way for the apostles on that. Um, Now there's just practical stuff going on in churches as to how do we deal with such differences? How do we deal with uh, the fact that we have different um, uh, concepts of how to live? How do we deal with the fact that some of us grew up Jewish, some of us grew up Gentile, some Greek, some Roman? Uh, How do we work through all that kind of stuff? What do we think of as the Spirit of God? We still deal with this in church, uh, though not to that kind of level, um, unless you live in a different area. We tend to all be of the same country. We kind of all grew up with the same language, uh, especially in our country. And so we don't really deal with some of the more deeper issues uh, that exist between uh, Christians worldwide. But uh, it's helpful for us, to, I think, to, to look into this anyway, because the differences that we do have, um, small though they may be, do tend to take front stage. And uh, while we may be from the same cultures, we will have different ways of interacting, especially in a time period like ours where we can divide over anything and kind of go to fists about it all. So let's kind of start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, and kind of pick up where we left off last time and then... Um, and then move towards the end of that chapter. So Ephesians chapter 4, will pick up, where Paul takes all of that marvelous theology that we walked through last time uh, on the reality of salvation and the dividing walls being broken down, even between Jew and Gentile. Now, he gives us the application for three chapters, which is chapters 4, 5, and 6. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Um, How is such unity to be pursued? Verse two answers, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. All of us, verse three, need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body. There is one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When he addresses this, obviously he is referring to the Spirit of God as the one through whom such unity comes. Uh, These virtues of the Christian life are not things that we uh, just strive and make happen, we cannot make them appear in our lives. Uh, The virtues of the Christian life are owed to the Spirit of God. And so when we read in the book of Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, gentleness, kindness, and faithfulness, all these things do not have their origin in us. And if they have their origin in us, they will surely fail at, at at the slightest breeze. And what was what is being addressed here is the reality that in order to think about this rightly, in order to even think about our Christian walk rightly, we are eager to maintain unity not just amongst us. We are eager to maintain unity in the uh, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not something that uh, we we'll just dig down into what we find already unified amongst us. Um, any any old group can do that. We can just join together on what things we hold in common, and then let that be that. But the unity of the Spirit makes peace between believers who disagree, makes peace between Jews and Greeks, makes peace between uh, those who are slaves and those who are freemen, makes peace between male and female, makes peace between husbands, wives, children, etc., Why does he express it this way? He says, because there is nothing else that will actually hold us together in any permanency. Real peace does not come through us. War and its resulting quiet times afterwards comes through us, as we're learning yet again in the world's history. We are not capable of lasting peace. The Spirit of God is. Opening to Ephesians 4. We're in verse 3. And so how do we pursue that in the church then practically? And this is where Paul is just going to continually remind us the way that that is pursued is that we are eager to maintain the unity that comes from the Spirit of God, not eager to maintain the unity that we all naturally hold, right? The, eager, the, the unity that we naturally hold, what things do you think we all hold in common? Let's kind of just go down those roads. What do we- way we dress. ah, Great, yeah. I mean, we tend to dress in a manner that's consistent with 21st century Americans. Yep. Oh, that's another one. We're all citizens of the U.S., right? So we hold that in common. Can these be defining characteristics of us as the body of Christ, or are these happenstances along the way? Right. What happens when they become definers of us is that we will only be unified in so much as those things we have in common, right? And so someone that comes from another country and and sets foot into our services may actually feel out of place, even though they're a Christian. One of my goals as a pastor, for instance, to encourage a church to maintain the unity that the Spirit brings is I wanted to be able to have a service where a brother or sister from Nigeria can set foot into our service and feel right at home, right? The, the reason for that is not because we eschew where we live or we throw away uh, our citizenship or our language or our dress code or anything like that. No, no, it's because what we are focused on is what Christians have in unity. That is Christ, that is the peace that comes to the Spirit of God, even if our countries were at war with one another, somebody that is a Christian should be able to come into the fellowship of the church and feel at home. I've expressed this before. There is actually a church in Binghamton that is a Russian Ukrainian Orthodox Baptist church. Now, there's a lot of terms in that, but the reality is there are families whose both sides of their families are at war with one another, and their uh, overarching bishops are on different sides of a massive conflict right now. And that filters down to the local church. How is it they maintain unity in the middle of that? It is by a laser focus on Christ. There is is no sitting here going, let's figure out which side is right so we can support the other side or set aside this. No, it is to focus on Christ and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Here's the reality, right? Ephesians is being written in about the year 62-63 something like this. In the year 70, the Roman Empire, where both um, Paul is imprisoned by and a citizen of, and Ephesus, it, our Greeks who belong to the Roman Empire, will actually invade and destroy Jerusalem, not only seven years after this. And so the encouragement from a Jewish man to Greeks living in the Roman Empire, both as citizens, in the, in the twirl of all that that's going to be going on, is to say, Still, when we come together, there is a unity of the spirit. Hey, Levi, can you color a little bit quieter, please? Only time I've ever said that sentence. (laughs) Thank you, sir. And so he reminds us there is only a singular reason why we can do this, because there is only one body. There has to be, because there's only one head of the church. The head of the church, Christ, cannot be the head of multiple bodies. There is one church, one body, one faith. There's only one way of salvation, one baptism. There's only one sign of such salvation. There's only one God. He's the father of all. It's a, what, what has happened involves the entirety of the Trinity and the entirety of creation, which means if you are a part of this creation— you have no excuse not to be in unity with another part of this creation that is saved by God as well. There is no excuse, not war, not famine, not plagues, not anything else. I fear sometimes and with good reason that because we have passed through such times of relative peace that we've forgotten how to weather times of difficulty. At least in the west at least right now. He reminds them, he says, this is, this is similar in every way. Is the way that you were called to one hope. There's not multiple hopes for Jews or Greeks or slave or free or Scythian or barbarian or Roman. We all have a singular hope, and his name is Christ Jesus, one Lord, one faith. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you really think there's a part of this creation whereby God has saved somebody and then we do not owe them fellowship? Paul says there is no such creature. You say, well, what if they're wrong? What if they're part of a culture we don't like? Yeah, I know. That's part of the struggle of this. That's why there needs to be constant encouragement to this, because otherwise there's divisions and factions, and Christians are very, very good at creating such things. Uh, They were even doing it in the first century. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. We're all of Christ, are we not? Who is Paul? Who Who is Peter? I'll say and remind to my Roman Catholic friends. Who is Apollos? Just servants. Christ is what holds us together. And if he doesn't hold us together, then our unity is a farce because our unity is only maintained by what we can make happen. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Correct. Yes. And that, uh, unfortunately, has been a very common way to interact with this. Um, One, we actually do hold the only way we just mix it up. It's not us. It's Christ. And when we move that just one step closer to us, either our favorite apostle for the Catholics and Peter, or whether in our favorite Bible teachers, even if they're right, it's still wrong to do that. Or in our movements, in our creeds, you have to agree with this creed. Look, I love the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, but I promise you, I'm not going to hold you to that. You know why? It's not of God, straight up. It's, it's a work of man. There's nothing wrong with clarifying these things. I agree with 99.9% of stuff in there. It's great stuff, hugely helpful, but it is not Christ. And it needs to be preached everywhere. I'm only responsible for here right now, so we'll just preach it here. And so Paul continues to remind everyone of of what this looks like, why it is that it's such a massive transition that he actually calls it a new life. Uh, This is something that means that we no longer walk in the way that we used to. He says this in verse 17, same chapter. This I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Uh, By the way, that's, that's the best that the Gentile world has to offer. Realize what he is talking about. He is talking about the cultures that we in our culture revere so highly, Greek and Roman thought. He calls it futility of mind. Why? Because they're darkened in their understanding. He doesn't even pull any punches. Verse 18, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. My goodness. Do not think that you're going to find your answers to serve God in your cultures, even if they're the highest ideals of classical thought. Verse nineteen. What is the outcome of thinking this way? They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sound familiar? But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have put, uh, excuse me, assuming that you have heard about Him and we and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What is he saying? Even if you desire so deeply to follow after the culture in which you live, that does not make it right. That does not make it of Christ. So what if it has really high ideals? Look at the philosophy of the Greeks, right? Look at the the governance that the Romans uh, designed in republics and all sorts of things. It's futile. It's not going to bring about the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We'll say, well, what does? Well, not our old self. If you're depending on unity between Christians on the same way you depend on unity in any other sphere before you were a Christian, you're going to miss it. Because that's part of the old self. Only this unity comes to the new self, and he's about to express what it is. So we put off our old self, this is in verse 32, excuse me, 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and instead to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's lowercase s, by the way. On purpose, necessarily so. And instead to put on the new self. What does the new self look like? It is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is a remarkable statement. Because what has invaded our lives upon salvation is not that we just have our sins forgiven. It is a whole new life a whole new image of God, a whole new being made after the likeness of God, a new creation. So different is it from the old self that it is not just a better version of what we used to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, it is. Because we did have righteous things in our life before, didn't we? Even our cultures do. They have good aspects to them and a lot of bad well, same with everything. Yes, there's a mixture of righteousness and evil, and here we have true righteousness and then that ever unattainable holiness. And yet it's ours. That is the basis of the peace in the church. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We actually are owing truth to one another. We're indebted to be truthful with one another. It's a very interesting way to put it. It's actually the way the new life works. What was the old life? We can just lie to get our way. What was he say here? No, no, no. That kind of deceit comes from our desires of natural things. We are actually created after Christ. Does God lie to us? What if it hurts our feelings? He does not lie to us. In fact, he cannot. And yet we find ourselves a mixture of both that struggle back and forth, don't we? Right? One side of us that finds ways in this world to get ahead through lying or through deceit or all of these different things he's about to list, anger, stealing, whatever the case may be it can get us ahead a little bit and then there's those who will push it to say look just lean into that evermore if you lean into anger you can make people do what you want to do or what you want them to do therefore that's good management i had a manager that once told me that fear is the best tool to lead people that was the best tool he had isn't that sad And that's kind of the reality that comes to this. It's not even just the good things that come from this either, incentives and so forth. There's actually examples that we live out between one another, right? Examples that we see when we are put to the test. What happens to a Christian when they lose somebody? What happens to a Christian when suffering comes their way? That's when our actual life shows up. So what are we told to do? Verse 25. Here's what it looks like. We put away falsehood and speak truth with his neighbor. Who are neighbors? Other Christians that may or may not be like us. We are members one of another. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Doesn't say all anger is wrong. There's some anger that is downright necessary. But we all know it crosses to sin very, very easily. It is why the wrath of God, it says in James, never produces the uh, righteousness of God. The, or see, the wrath of man, excuse me, never produces the righteousness of God. Why is that? Because that's not the way in which it comes. But it is very effective at stopping sin. So what do we say? We say, be angry, but do not sin. In fact, Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Why does he say it like that? He says, because if you are angry in sin, you will not be able to shut it off. Even when the sun goes down. It'll keep you awake at night. It will rule you rather than you controlling it. It's the same error that comes with drunkenness. It's not you ruling something, it's something else ruling you. Same issue, for instance, with... um, Uh, compulsive gambling, for instance. At one point, it crosses over from you controlling something to it controlling you. And what he is expressing in multiple places here, the same thing with thieving and stealing, all of this stuff will quickly control us if we are not controlled by the Spirit instead. You You see the position it places us in. It never places us in the position of being in control of all things. We lie to ourselves when we think we are. If we think we're in control of all things, we are servant of more things than you can count. Either we are controlled by the Spirit of God or we are controlled by deceitful desires. End of story. He says, so for the Christian, right? We are to give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, look at the exact opposite goal. If you are stealing from people, it is in order to take from them and serve yourself. It says, instead, how about you go out, make, uh, make a living, work with your hands, so that you may be able to be generous. It's the exact opposite of it. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such that is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk can be all manner of things, and it's meant to be very broad. It can be sowing discord, it can be complaining, it can be just destructive things you say to somebody, to tear them down and make yourself feel better. But here, what does he say? The exact opposite. The goal of your words should be to build one another up, not to tear one another down. Wherever the occasion presents itself, that it might give grace to those who hear. Verse 30 is kind of where we were heading here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, without the context, it's kind of hard to understand what in the world that means. How how does the Holy Spirit of God grieve? But in context, it makes it very clear. Don't wrestle with him. Look at the life he's bringing in you. Lean into that. You say, well, what, what if I don't get ahead in the way that you know, lies get me ahead. What if I don't get ahead? Or what if what if my life is easier without being honest at all points? Or here's a little bit of stealing, but it's not that bad. It just kinda, you know, I just needed this. I don't need to pay all my taxes. It'll actually set me free to keep some of this. That is the exact opposite of the life of God. Pay your taxes. Fear God and honor the king. Do good to all. Love the brotherhood. How many different ways can it be expressed to us to say that the life that God is working in us through the spirit of God is not something that comes natural to us. What does come natural to us is grieving that. Is actually fighting against him. And so he then gives us a huge list of what that looks like. Verse 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, Slander, get it away from you, all malice, and instead the opposite. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I want to put out there this does not mean that you just get steamrolled by angry, slanderous, malicious people claiming to be Christians. No. This means you forgive one another when there is anything consistent with, as John the Baptist says, fruit in keeping with repentance. If somebody comes up to you and says, I deeply apologize, I slandered you in this way and it was wrong, forgive them 70 times 7. But if they defend their error and lean into it and make it their job to destroy you through anything in these lists, bitterness and wrath and anger, This is why things like church discipline exist. So that we do not get dominated by things that are leading us to death and instead are placed on the same life that God is working in us all. So that we may be free to be kind to one another and to be tender-hearted without somebody coming up and destroying us. Why do we forgive one another? God in Christ forgave us. Any Christian that is coming to another Christian heartfeltly seeking forgiveness should be given it with no hesitation. And you say that that goes against my Oh, that's, that's frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I know. Peter said the same thing. How, how many times in this in this new kingdom that you're bringing? How many times in the kingdom of heaven does my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? 7 seven whole times? I mean, that is the number of perfection. It's really high. It's like the number of creation. There's all sorts of uh, importance to that. And Jesus, in a very hyperbolic way, just goes, just multiply it by 70. 70 times seven. Just, just forget them. And as a side note to that, Christian, if you think you have exhausted the forgiveness of God, realize he never commands us something that he himself does not do. This back and forth between comparing what the Spirit of God is doing versus those desires and things in this world that would easily control us uh, continues through. We're not going to read all of chapter 5, but I do want you to see an instance of it. Um, Verse 15 through uh, verse 18. Well, actually, we'll just do 15 through 21, but 18 is what we're going to be paying attention to here. So he continually challenges us Uh, To see the walk of the Christian life is to be one that's lived in service each to one another. And so he tells us in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Don't walk as unwise people, but as wise people. I mean, that's pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, that's basically the whole book of Proverbs in a single verse. I like it. Why? Well, we make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so he shows this natural aspect, uh, even it comes into our language where we talk about um, uh, hard liquor in forms of spirits. Why do we talk about it that way? Because it has a way in its excess of controlling us in the same way that God the Spirit actually will control us. It's actually quite fascinating how that works. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine. Why? Because that's debauchery. Pretty straightforward. Drunkenness will destroy you. What does he say here? Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He actually puts them against one another. Why? Because one will lead to you losing all control and instead doing whatever the basis instincts are. The other one will give control over the Spirit of God who then brings virtue into your life. He actually sets the two of them up as comparisons. Taking something that God made in this world to be good and to be received with thanksgiving, you can see how we pervert it by taking too much of it. He says, well, what does it look like instead to be filled with the Spirit? What comes out of us then? We address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. None of that is natural for us. None of it. Not a bit of that. We do not like giving thanks in any and every circumstance. It does not come natural to us, I promise. If you think it does, you haven't passed through grave difficulties yet. It doesn't come natural. It is a huge struggle, but it is something that is present in the life of a growing Christian. Even if it's a flash of gratitude in the midst of great difficulty, there's an understanding of the providence of God who is guiding you through this without accident? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here is the fascinating thing nobody does that naturally, especially in our culture. That is the headline for what he is about to introduce. Uh, This huge passage about familial relationships on wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and freemen. Let me give you a little bit of hint here. It is so much the headline as to what's doing that the word for wives submit to your husband is not actually in verse 22. We just have to translate it because our language doesn't work this way. Greek will have this, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ wives to your husbands husbands love to your wives That's how submission looks in both situation how does it work in the children to father one it's very next uh, paragraph children obey your parents fathers do not provoke your children to wrath it's submission from both lines all the way up slaves how does it look like obey your masters masters be good to your slaves because you serve a master in heaven to whom we will all give account every single level of every relationship that we have up down horizontal whether family whether culture whether in the church is to be is to be built on submission both directions the book of romans will actually put it this way outdo one another in showing honor you want to you want to compare yourself to another christian you want to you want to get in a competition Submit to one another stronger than the other one submitting to you. Serve one another. Honor one another. He holds wives to a similar role that the church has to Christ. He holds uh, much more strictly and dangerously husbands to the same role that Christ has to the church. Brutal. On both sides. In fact, Peter, in First Peter chapter 3, verse... 8, will actually, verse 7, will actually express to husbands, if you do not do this, I will not listen to your prayers. Brutal language. Why? Because if you do not understand the basis of service to one another, not based on level in society or in family, but in belonging to Christ, you're going to miss just about everything else. And you'll never be grateful. We put on instead the whole armor of God. This is how he concludes this whole section. Finally, verse 10, chapter 6, after he goes through wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and, uh, and masters. There's no partiality with God. He reminds them, verse 10 then, finally, be strong in the Lord. Now. We probably hear that phrasing and go, oh yeah, I remember that verse from Sunday school or I've heard it said before. Think about it for a second based on everything he's just described. Being strong in self will lead to nothing but discord and disarray, chaos. Being strong in the Lord means submitting to one another, serving one another, being grateful and all these things. That's where the strength is. Not instead of drunkenness, which leads to debauchery. Instead, submission to the Spirit of God, which leads to gratefulness. That's where your strength should be. In seeing the virtues that God is working in your life and instead being strong there. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice it's not yours. (laughs) Notice you actually aren't there. You're just the recipient of something actually powerful. Put on the whole armor of God. That's not the whole armor of you. Who's able to just ignore bad people or and uh, and fight them? Nope. This is God's armor. Why? So that you may be able to stand against a foe that you have no ability towards the schemes of the devil. We saw what the strongest humans were able to do against the devil, didn't we? Humans that didn't even have a sin nature yet in the garden. How fast did they fall? First temptation, do you really think holding a sin nature, you have the ability to outmaneuver the schemes of the devil? You can't. And so he says, all all the surety of this, all the strength of this comes from the Lord. It does not come from you, and it doesn't come from holding each other accountable. It doesn't come from any of this. This only comes from the Spirit of God. Watch what he does with this. Why? Why? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yes, the whole spiritual side that is not of God is what we are wrestling against. And so we, we live in the modern world. We don't think about that very much. I know that's kind of the problem. It's why we keep looking at the answers deep down in ourselves and finding only deceitful desires. Here, was he say? Therefore, how do you wrestle against spiritual forces of darkness? It is not by getting the right crucifix and yelling at the top of your lungs, I bind you, Satan, or any of these things. You don't have that power. How do we wrestle against this stuff? He describes it perfectly. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. In fact, the onslaught will only make you stronger. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Notice there's no deception. There's none of the old way where we, where we lie to get ahead or we cover our tracks or any of that stuff. That's leading to death. That leads to death every single time. No, instead, what holds us all together is truth. Having put on the breastplate of, again, righteousness, true righteousness, Eleni, as you pointed out earlier. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. How is it that we stand firm? Well, the same way that Roman soldiers did. They had shoes that were lashed to their feet that actually had cleats in the ground. What is it that gives us that kind of surety? It is the good news of peace between us and God. We are not fighting the spiritual forces of darkness while trying to make God happy. No, no, no. That's not how this works. God is pleased with us because of the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, we stand in peace with God as he continually works these things in our life. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, then, take up the shield of faith. Again, reliance. The whole concept of faith is that we rely on God to actually be our sure defense. How many different psalms can come to your mind on this? God is our refuge, a sure help in time of trouble. God is a shield to the righteous. There's dozens of places where the psalmist uses the exact same picture here. We rely on God, why? Because he truly is the keep of the castle. What happens with the shield of of faith? It will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, which the book of Colossians will actually add in the caveat, the helmet of the hope of salvation. Know that you belong to God. That assurance does not come from you doing lots of good actions. That assurance comes from Christ, through the Spirit of God. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is what we're here for, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Thankfully, he told us exactly what that is. Elsewise, how quickly would we say, hey, we finally have a weapon of offense? No, all of these are defense, all of them. And the only one that's able to inflict any wound on anyone else is the word of God. It is not us. In other words, we do not come in and rebuke any of this. You don't have that power. Your words don't have that ability. The word of God does. Again, the psalmist comes to mind. The word of God I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against Him. Why? Because the word of God actually has that power to do that. It is why when we come together, we preach the scriptures, we read the scriptures, we sing things in accord with the scriptures. Why? Because that is the only way that you will and I will pursue life. Otherwise, it's just my thoughts up there, and I promise my thoughts aren't worth following. Promise. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. With all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. All the saints. No exceptions. You do not stand in an army and then grade whether or not that person standing next to you is worthy to stand next to you. You are in that army. It is the Lord's army. Pray for everyone. Encourage one another. Hey, your belt is coming undone. See to that error. Hey, Hold the shield up higher. Let's protect one another. Don't set your sword on the ground. You cannot fight this battle without the word of God. This constant reminder to one another, praying for one another, that's the picture that's going. We march forward. Why? Not because we're actually going to come out here and destroy everything. No. Instead, God is going to put an end to all these things. These are defensive stances while we live in this world. Don't allow one another to be taken over by this. Persevere to the end. Endure with all prayers. And then he asked them, pray for me too. He's in prison. He's about to be executed. The next year after writing this, he's going to be beheaded in Rome. So he said in verse 19, not only make supplication for all the saints, But also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Nothing else matters, does it? And the things that do matter, uh, how does that hymn go? We turn our eyes to Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Why does it say that that way? It's not like the stuff of this world is meaningless. No, it has meaning. There is good out there. But it's not good enough for us to just focus on the good that's out there. We are called to something much higher, much grander, much stronger, because this world will try its darndest to destroy us, to take out any solidity that's found in Christ, any confidence in the word of God, and any care and concern for one another. That is not how it is to be with us. Any questions or thoughts here? The book of Ephesians is one of my favorites because of this exact reason. Um, any questions or thoughts here at the end? I have never seen husbands and wives at a different level. Yes. The wives are just told to so submit; the husbands are told to. Dramatically different standards. Right. Um, one is held accountable. The physical and you know, spiritual. Yeah. So both of them are spiritual. One is more apparent, the other one is more severe. Um, yeah, you you're exactly right. And that's why I say what well, what a terrifying thing, um, to to have as your one singular example to how to be married is Christ and how he treats the church. Um, by the way, husbands, um, how you treat your wife says a lot about how you think God interacts with you. That's a terrifying thought, to be perfectly honest. Um, wives, the same. It's how you think the church treats Christ. The same for children to their parents. The same for fathers to their children. Note, notice a, a man who um, has a bondservant and children and a wife how he is focused on in three of them and told in all of them, behave like Christ, don't provoke your children to wrath, and be kind to your servants. What's the implication of what our natural thing is? Lord over your wives, use anger to control your children in any which way, and mistreat your slaves to make them do whatever you want. You can see the ways of the world versus the way of being a, Christian father. Same for women in there. Wives, what does it look like? It looks like submitting to your husbands. Why? It's not because they're right. I promise. It's not. It's because the whole point of marriage was to depict the church to Christ. The whole point of it. It's not about who gets to make decisions. Look, a loving husband will take the the conference with his wife, period. All right? Correct. Because if, if godly marriage is destroyed, then we actually have no basis to understand what the church's relationship to her Savior is. Because there's nothing else in everything. All we will do is we'll look at it in the form of a government. And I'm not going to bring politics into this, but I will say this. The way that people look at the government says a lot about what they think about God. Give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. don't tell me what to do. Happens on both sides of the political spectrum. Okay, let's close out Ephesians, perhaps one of the most fascinating books that uh, Paul writes towards the end of his life. The book of Philippians is next week. We should be able to do that in a singular lesson. We will see how that goes. Uh, If you're not familiar, um, as Paul continues on to his life, the letters he writes are shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, the long ones, Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and everything are some of the earliest ones he wrote, um, except for Galatians. But all of these, I'm actually going through chronologically. They get shorter and shorter. We actually lay them out in the New Testament that way. If you're not familiar, Romans is first because it's the longest. Philemon is last because it's the shortest. We just that's all we did. So that's uh, unfortunately it's not chronological. I kind of wish it was because it would make teaching this a little bit easier, and we would read them in order, which would make far more sense. Uh, but Then I'd be out of a job because you'd be able to understand all that. No, no, just kidding. (laughs) Alrighty, uh, let's pray at the end of this uh, for the strength that only comes from the Spirit of God. Father, we are very grateful for your word. Um, It consistently lightens our feet. It shows us the path that's in front of us, sometimes only one step, sometimes many. Um, But Father, at all points, we know that this new life that you have given us in Christ is not owed to our great piety. It is not owed to our great righteousness that we have somehow accomplished, but, Father, it it depends entirely on Christ and the Spirit of God who is consistently working in us, that which is pleasing in your sight. We thank you that your word does this to us. We thank you that the fellowship of the church continually reminds us of the need that we have to not focus on ourselves, but instead to focus on Christ, We pray that our fellowship may be that even very much this morning, especially as we come to the table of communion. We thank you, Father, for all these things in your Son's name. Amen.